I think we've entered a new phase of medicine where if you're not seeing a doctor who's actually monitoring or, or doing these things for you, go somewhere else because there's so many things we can, that the traditional doctors are not doing from advanced lipid panels to various hormone testing to nutrient levels to maybe, you know, doing a clearly test or pre -nuva. There's so much testing that can be done and um, lifestyle recommendations that should be recommended that can really change people's lives and how well they're going to age. Welcome to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. This is a podcast that goes deep into topics that help you live longer and smarter. Each week, we'll deliver science-backed advice from the world's leading experts in nutrition, health, technology, fitness, relationships, and mindset. We cut through the BS to get you real answers and solutions. So let's hone in. Really excited to have you, Dr. Frank Lippman. We've known each other now for five years, probably. Time has gone by. You yeah. are... A, a master of your realm. You've published seven books. You're now the CMO of Hardy, which is an incredibly interesting longevity startup run by some real kind of industry veterans. On top of the fact that you have one of the most arguably premier practices in the country, which is 1111 Health in the city. So I'd, I'd love if you kind of just opened up, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I qualified as a physician 44 for 43 years ago, mm -hmm. been a physician a long time. And early in my training, I realized the shortcomings of Western medicine. So I started exploring other types of medicine and um, I, I grew up and trained in South Africa. And when I came, I immigrated to the States in 1983, 1984, because we didn't want to live in South Africa during apartheid. And when I came to the States, I had to do a residency in internal medicine. This is 1984. And after a few weeks of my residency, I was really disillusioned with Western medicine. And there happened to be an acupuncture clinic doing detox in the South Bronx at the hospital that sponsored me for a green card. So um, I went to check out acupuncture and I fell in love with acupuncture. And that began a whole journey exploring other types of medicine. So during my residency, I was spending time at the hospital and I was seeing the wonders of Western medicine, how we dealt with acute heart attacks, acute pneumonias, broken bones. It was wonderful for crisis care. And I was going to the acupuncture clinic and I was seeing that they were helping people who were tired and couldn't poop and had headaches. Mm -hmm. And I saw, this was 1984, and I saw the future of medicine would be a combination of Chinese medicine and Western medicine because they were both good at different things. Mm -hmm. So I started going down that route. How do I combine Western and Chinese medicine? And uh, I started learning meditation and herbal medicine and nutrition and eventually sort of got into this functional medicine world and started pioneering and, you know, started practicing what we now call functional medicine. And as you know, you just get better and better at your craft and you use whatever works for people. Um, and that's what I do. And then, you know, I'm now 68, almost 69. And as I got into my 60s, I started getting interested in anti-aging or longevity because, you know, I wanted to sort of stay <laughs> young or healthy as I got older. 
and uh, I started looking at all the research and realizing there's a lot of research on how to age better. And I wrote a book on it. And now I really practice what I would call longevity medicine. So I use genetic testing, which is very helpful to, to um, fine tune or to target the way you treat someone. We use a lot of blood testing, a lot of biomarkers, inflammatory markers, metabolic markers, hormone markers. So we use genetic testing and then I use all these biomarkers and then we come up with a program for someone. And in the last couple of years, last year or two since I joined you young guys or into <laughs> all these wearables and now I use wearables and, and sort of add that to the mix. So we have a really wonderful combination of you know how to keep people healthy so that's what i do that's great and your intention is to live until you're 120 no my intention is just to have a good time as i get older you know i have a grandson now who's three years old i want to spend as much time and enjoy him and do whatever i want to do for however long i live whether it's five years 20 years for i don't know 40 years i just want to be able to be active and do whatever i want to do so you know as we talk about you know, how do I increase my health span while I'm increasing my lifespan? So I just want to stay healthy and do whatever I want to do until I drop dead, whether that's, hopefully it's not tomorrow, but um, that's more about staying healthy and vital as I get older. And I guess if you had a, let's say you had one thing to tell me about longevity. Yeah. That's it. You got one thing. What's the one thing you would tell me? Well, it's changed over the years. Uh, probably the latest thing I would tell you is exercise. Mm -hmm. But exercise wasn't something I did enough of as I, when I was younger. And as I've gotten older, I've realized how important, especially strength training, which I never did. I hated strength training. I used to do yoga and I ride my bike. Um, but now, if now, and this would be a different answer where I gave you probably a year ago, mm -hmm. now I would say exercise in particular strength training because as you get older I mean and I feel it as you get older and you start losing muscle mass um, you know you know keeping your muscles strong or not losing muscle mass is not only good for preventing disability which happens as you get older but it's also a metabolic organ so it helps with you know blood sugar metabolism so I would say exercise is also, you know, I have shitty genes. So exercise is important to prevent Alzheimer's. I mm have -hmm. an A34 genetic uh, variant. So um, if I had to choose one thing and I hate choosing one thing, I would choose exercise. But there are a lot of things just maybe right up there too. A lot of it, you know, maybe having to do with relationships and having hmm. purpose in your life and being kind. So I, I don't think there's one thing, but you asked me today, I'd say exercise. Maybe tomorrow I would say having love and purpose in your life. That's so interesting. So you actually think, or maybe there's research you've read that if you have love and purpose in your life, that you're gonna be living longer. Well, that's my clinical experience with the people that I see mm -hmm. who are healthy and live a long time almost to the T have purpose in their life. Their purpose may be their family, their purpose could be their work, but they all are um, driven in a way by something that's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. 
my clinical experience has been that people that I see who remain healthy as they get older, all of them to a T have some type of purpose in their life. Do you and it could be something that's not important to you. It could mm -hmm. be as simple as spending time with their grandchildren. Do you think, so when people come to you and they don't, they're looking to extend their longevity or their health span, is to say, so to say, and you assess they don't have purpose, is there a way that you can actually give them some or help guide them towards it? Sure. I mean, you you, you got to try to find what's meaningful to people. Mm -hmm. You know, where they, for some people it's their work, for other people it's uh, their family, for other people it's doing good. So yeah, you sort of finding out what what sort of brings them joy, what what is going to keep them motivated to want to 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 live more and to to have that purposeful life. So, but and it's different for everyone. That's the beauty. And by the way, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I feel like if you have a reason to continue pushing, you're excited, you wake up, you exactly. are looking forward to something, maybe you're constantly yeah. trying to learn. Like they say, if you don't use it, you lose it, is a exactly. very real thing, absolutely. right? Absolutely. And it's not just muscles, it's, it's, it's everything, brain. absolutely. So yeah, I mean, so I think that's important. I think the intangible parts of aging are the relationships we have, the love in our life, the purpose, the meaning, um, gratitude, forgiveness, kindness, all these aspects of life that we can't really measure, yep. um, I think are probably as important, if not more important than these other as aspects that we can measure. Now look, I measure everything now. So I think that's important. I'm not negating measuring things, but the things we can't measure probably are more important than the things we can. That's beautiful. And by the way, I actually wholeheartedly agree. The moment that I started paying more attention to the softer parts of my life, and it really started with meditation and gratitude, my life opened up and my stress was reduced dramatically. And you know, the second your stress comes yeah. down, all of a sudden life seems so much easier. Sure, and I think you, you know, and I'm speaking to you. This is great to hear you speak like this because I love the biohacking world, and uh, which is how I sort of met you. And I think the biohacking world has changed medicine, which is good. Mm -hmm. But the aspect of the biohacking world that I think is a problem is it's very masculine, it's very yang, and they don't take into account these yin aspects, these intangibles and um, I think that's so softening it up I think is a really good thing I wanted to kind of move the, the conversation we've spent a lot of time internally as a team reading your last book and we've got a bunch of questions for you okay from it very specifically so the first one is around one of the things you said is that after the age of 45 your body actually actually needs far fewer calories and the studies show that people who reduced calories lived longer and even some avoided some age-related diseases. And so I guess the question is, why start eating less now and slowly taking in less the older that you get? Well, I think there are a couple of things and there's some nuances here. So, you know, we have these 
um, systems in our body that have to get rid of all the junk. Mm -hmm. um, so the more you put in, the more work it is on, on your body to actually get rid of, um, whether it's how you process the food or your metabolism in, in general. So I think eating less just makes it easier on your body. Secondly, um, as we get older, we have a harder time metabolizing carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. So if you don't decrease your carbohydrates, you tend to put on weight, you tend to develop diabetes or insulin resistance. Um, so you don't necessarily have to decrease all your calories. I mean, I think as you get older than 45, my age, especially once you get to 60, you actually need to increase your protein. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think, um, it changes all the time, but as you get to 40, you know, I have this cutoff, you know, pre 40, 45 and post. Before 40, 45, you're building, you want to have babies, you're producing. Um, after 45, you're protecting and preserving. Mm -hmm. So you want to just preserve what you have and, and stay healthy. So after 45, you just don't need as many calories generally and the calories you do need or eat i think should be quite targeted so taking out all the crap and especially all the starchy foods and the sugars become even more important what about and so i'll, I'll actually flip that and so the other thing too is right we've talked about this so many times people are so steeped in their habits and a lot of their habits have been formed over 30 40 50 sure. years and a lot of people just want to continuously eat or it's very hard for them to shift that backwards. How do you get someone to cut down their caloric intake without some kind of appetite suppressant? Well, so the way I work and what I find most effective is, and I, I do it to myself in a way as well, you've got to scare someone enough or make <laughs> them aware that of the consequences of eating too much, eating too much shit, not exercising, not doing the things that keep you healthy. For instance, you know, I have this EPOE34 gene variant where 25% of the population have it. It makes me more prone to Alzheimer's, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. I don't particularly love exercising, mm -hmm. you know. I can meditate more easily. The diet and fasting is easy. Exercise for me is work. It's not, you know, I, I feel good after I exercise, but I don't go in the mornings, oh, God, I'm going to exercise. I love riding my bike outside. Mm -hmm. That's different. But I don't, you know, even though I know I feel good after exercise, I don't go, you know, to the weights in the morning, oh, God, I'm looking forward to doing the weights. I can do it because I need to do it. So I know how important exercise is for me to prevent Alzheimer's disease or to prevent me from being disabled. So I, that's what I do to my patients or say to my patients. You don't want to put on weight. You don't want to have aches and pains. You don't want to lose your memory. You, you don't want to have brain fog. You don't want, and you don't have to. Mm -hmm. But as you get older, it becomes harder and harder to maintain what you want. And you just got to work harder at it. So you got to eat a little bit less. You got to you know, sometimes fast, you got to exercise more, you got to do something for the stress. So you, you got to scare someone a little bit or, or make them aware of the consequences 
um, you've got to make them aware that it's not as easy as it used to be and that's just the reality and you know tell them that it's actually these things are modifiable you can change you just got to work at it and um so that's a struggle i have in my head it's not a struggle i mean that's is why i don't want to lose my marbles i want to stay healthy <laughs> and enjoy my grandson as he you know grows older as well so you know it's a matter of sort of the carrot and the stick and um you asked how do you get people to eat less mm -hmm. the easiest way to get people to eat less is to do intermittent fasting because i automatically eat less because i don't have breakfast mm -hmm. so i'll have for instance um i have my let's i'll have my dinner at seven o'clock or let's i finish at eight o'clock i won't eat anything until 12 or whatever mm -hmm. 16 hours ish so i tend to eat two meals because i'm not having breakfast so i tend to eat less just because i'm fasting so it sort of happens automatically and that's what i see a lot when you get people to have that 16 hour break of not eating or or, or um, condense the amount of calories calories they eat in an eight hour period they tend to eat less and you know really great tip is you know i put some ketones in my coffee in the morning and it you know you just don't get hungry i mean apart from making me sharper mm -hmm. you just don't get hungry so that's a nice little tip but generally if you do intermittent fasting you tend to eat less so so tell me about what ketones are actually because i actually am a huge fan ketones hvmm but i think a lot of people don't necessarily know well that's a good question what are they i mean it's just a way of fueling your body um, and giving it the en an energy source that is different to carbohydrates we used to just getting carbohydrates and getting the sugar and having the sugar do the work um, when you're fasting and, and, and especially when you're fasting i mean i know that a lot of the athletes are using ketones as well i mean i'm not exactly sure how effective it is i think a lot of the athletes need to use carbohydrates and ketones but when your body doesn't have the sugar and the carbohydrates to to function and you have the ketones the ketones sort of do that work and it's just a much healthier especially temporarily i mean if you people can be in ketosis a long time it's you know i'm sure that's very difficult i just am happy to do it in the morning and just my philosophy is you've got to make something doable for people mm -hmm. it needs to be practical you can't get it you know if it's not accessible um people are not going to do it so you've got to change people's lives in a way that they're going to do it if you make it too difficult for someone it's not going to work so ketones are sort of a nice hack to get into that, you know, that metabolic state, which is actually good for your body, good for your mind. It's not that difficult to do if you just put ketones in your coffee as opposed to doing it by starving yourself and eating a certain way. So I don't know if you know this, but I actually started fasting right around the time I met you and because of you. And I remember I was in your office and I was telling you, Frank, I actually don't like fasting. I get really hungry about the 12-ish hour mark. And you helped me change my perspective, which is you said, think about it this way. Right when you're hungry and your stomach is kind of growling and your brain is telling you, Saad, reach for that piece of food. If you push through it, 
there's a superpower on the other side, which is your body starts mobilizing your carbohydrate source to your fat source. And that's when the ketones start generating. And if you can get to the other side, there's a tremendous amount of clarity. Yeah, there's clarity and it's just good for your metabolism. It's good for your, you know, so many people, I was pre-diabetic too. Um, One of the best ways to manage sugar dysregulation is intermittent fasting. So the intermittent fasting and the fasting because it gets to gets you into that um, ketosis to a certain extent um, is good for your brain. It's good for your gut. It's good for your um, for the aging process. It, it you know triggers longevity genes, but it, in particular, it's really good for your shu- for sugar metabolism. Some people lose weight. Not everyone loses weight with it, but some people do. Um, and I think part of that is because, you know, your insulin levels drop. But not everyone loses weight. But as a general rule, it's good for sugar dysregulation, for, you know, in- insulin resistance and aging in general. What does that mean, insulin resistance? So the, the way I explain it, to, to people is you don't just become diabetic. Mm-hmm. You, you, it starts off with you just not metabolizing sugar properly. And when that happens, you have to create more insulin to help the sugar get into the cells. And the more, that, um, the more that's happening in your body, your cells get resistant to the insulin. So your body has to create more insulin. Mm-hmm. So after that's been going on for a while, you then become pre-diabetic when that's been going on for a while you become diabetic so sort of the spectrum of sugar dysregulation insulin resistance pre-diabetes diabetes so most of us are somewhere along the spectrum insulin resistance is relatively well it's not early but it's an earlier phase in pre-diabetes what are other hormonal changes that happen as a result of fasting? Because there are a lot of just sure, superpowers. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you probably would be interested in or biohackers are interested in, can increase growth hormone. Yep. Um, but, you know, it's going to affect a lot of your hormones. Um, the big ones, I think, are insulin and growth hormone. But the other, you know, all the hormones work together. It's a symphony. But the ones that, we think about with fasting are really insulin, probably a bit of growth hormone. Is there any way that I can increase my growth hormone even more by fasting? Or is it kind of like once you start, it's at a relatively stable? Well, it's a harder hormone to measure, although you can measure it. Um, You know, I think so many factors influence growth hormone. Um, Fasting is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Exercising is going to help. Sleep. Yeah, we should talk about sleep. Sleep is is a huge uh, anti-aging um, pill. Um, so there are many factors uh, before you even try hormones. I know you 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 started off as a hormone company, but I think we can manipulate or adjust our hormones in a big way by lifestyle changes and and. Or put it this way, there are many ways of of manipulating, modifying your hormones without actually taking hormones. Not that I'm against hormones. I'm all for for men, testosterone, for women, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. By the way, testosterone is not just a a male hormone. So I'm, I'm all for hormone replacement. Don't get me wrong. 
I take testosterone as you know as you as we go get older I think it becomes more and more important so it's not that I'm against them but I think just relying on the hormones and not making the lifestyle changes is is not the right way of doing it I I couldn't agree with you more and I actually believe you shouldn't even consider or think about hormones unless you're not sleeping right unless yeah. you're not eating right, unless you figured out how to reduce your stress, unless you're drinking enough water. Yeah. I think it is only after those should you even be thinking about this as an option for me because the reality is most of everything that we go through can just be fixed if you take a little bit of care of yourself. Yeah. And look, I mean, as you get older, more shit happens to you. I can swear, <laughs> right? And you got, you know, I'm not against drugs too. I mean, you know, sometimes people need a statin. You know, when mm -hmm. I use a statin, I use a low-dose statin. So I'm not against drugs. I don't just hand out drugs, but when there, there's a place for drugs too. So my attitude is, you know, we start with lifestyle changes. I think that's sort of the, the basis. Sometimes people need hormones. Sometimes people need drugs. Yep. I'm not against whatever is going to help someone I'm all for. Tell me about, you know, as you fast, there are a lot of other great changes that happen. Hormonal changes, insulin up, resistant improves, growth hormone levels improve. What does it do to your stomach? Well, interestingly enough, so this is what I've only noticed because I see so many people that we do it, what well, we, we recommend it to. For some people, it actually makes their reflux worse. That's not common. Hmm. For most people, it actually helps digestion, hmm. for most people. And we often actually recommend it for digestive problems too. But I have noticed quite a number, in particular women, but quite a number of people who when they fast tend to get reflux. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's cut and dried. As a general rule, I think it's good for digestion. It's good for the microbiome. But there are definitely... a uh, percentage of people who is actually going to make reflux in particular worse. And so what is a microbiome? So the microbiome is this collection of bacteria in well, the, the collections of bacteria in under your arms, um, in your genital area. <laughs> um, but the main microbiome we talk about is this collection of bacteria in our gut. Mm -hmm. And we have trillions and trillions of bacteria in our gut. Most of them are good for you. you know, we think of bacteria as being bad for you. Most of them are actually good for you. They're helping you aid digestion, um, make hormones, they're protecting the gut lining, which is one of the key functions of, of the bacteria. But there's a whole organ system in our gut that we don't talk enough about. Gastroenterologists don't talk enough about it. And it's sort of this... Um, organ system that we don't really have enough knowledge about. But what we do know, and clinically we see this, when there's an imbalance, when there's too many, it's not as simple as this, but to make it simple, there, there's an overgrowth of either bacteria or fungi or parasites. When there's an imbalance in the good and the bad, we can develop all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. And some of the problems that people develop are not only digestive, so normally people will start with having bloating and reflux and gas and either constipation or diarrhea or alternating constipation and diarrhea. But often what happens when people have 
microbiome problems because that protective layer of the gut wall is not there anymore and the gut wall is very, very thin. Mm -hmm. When you don't have that protective layer, some of the metabolites of the bacteria or some byproducts of food actually leak through this very thin layer mm -hmm. and gets into the bloodstream and creates inflammatory processes, can create inflammatory process, processes all over the body, can create autoimmune problems. So that layer of the gut wall, which is sort of like the skin, but on the inside, and is protecting you from the outside world, when that gets damaged, and it often gets damaged because it's for a long part of it, it's just one cell thick. Hmm. So it's very, very thin. Wow. So when your microbiome is off and you're not protecting that layer with the good bacteria and there's microscopic damage because it's often not seen by endoscopy, you get this leakage of this material. Hmm. In fact, there's a, a study that just came out, I saw last week, talking about how a leaky gut or toxins leaking through the gut create weight gain and obesity. So we've known in, 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 in the functional medicine world, we've been talking about leaky gut for a long time, starting to be accepted in Western medicine. But this idea of a microscopic damaged wall in the gut is probably um, that um, so that the not the idea but this damage to this gut lining is probably the most common cause of inflammation in the body so when people are hmm. very aware that inflammation causes heart disease alzheimer's osteoporosis you name it most chronic diseases a lot of the a lot of the inflammation stems from the gut in fact there was another study last week as well that came out they're finding different, you know, different gut problems can trigger Alzheimer's too. So I think there's more and more realization and more and more research going on how, how the gut, different bacteria, different metabolites of gut bacteria. So you get prebiotics, which feed the probiotics, which are the gut bacteria, and those probiotics make postbiotics, mm -hmm. which are the metabolites of the bacteria. So those postbiotics can be pro-inflammatory, can be anti-inflammatory. So what the bacteria make, these metabolites, these postbiotics, they're made by the probiotics, are very important um, to the rest of the body. And especially if, if you have the leaky gut, because if you have a leaky gut, those postbiotics and those metabolites are not staying in the gut where mm -hmm. they should be, but they're leaking through and getting into the bloodstream. Was that too much in one? Uh... No, I'm actually, so I'm, I'm, let me make sure I get this right. So your prebiotics are what you feed. So the prebiotics are sort of stalks and stems, fiber. Prebiotics okay. are foods that our bodies don't digest. Okay. So those feed the, bio, the, the probiotics, the good bacteria yep. and the bad bacteria. That's why when you've got a problem, sugar feeds the bad bacteria bad news. So you have the prebiotics, which is the fiber, the stalks and stem, not broken down by the body. They feed the good bacteria or the bacteria. Those bacteria from that food make metabolites and excrete those metabolites. Those are called postbiotics now. So those postbiotics then go and can create 
anti, they, they can be anti-inflammatory or they can be pro-inflammatory. If they're pro-inflammatory, if they often those postbiotics made by these bad bacteria create havoc throughout the body. So when people say that you are what you eat, they could not be more right. I mean, you are literally driving Alzheimer's, you're driving diabetes, you're driving uh, any kind of inflammatory disease based upon what you put in your body. Um, to a certain extent, you are um, you are what you eat, but you also are what your bacteria eat and what they excrete. I see a lot of this, in particular young women, but young men too, who, who had a lot of antibiotics as kids. Mm -hmm. When you get given a lot of antibiotics, my generation of doctors overprescribed antibiotics. Every time you went to a doctor with a cold or whatever, you got antibiotics. Those antibiotics kill whatever bacteria are sensitive to that antibiotic, mm -hmm. many of which are the good bacteria that are protecting your lining, keeping your gut working well. Mm. When that happens and, and they're killing the good bacteria, you get an overgrowth of yeast or bad bacteria. Those bad bacteria are going to then metabolize the food that comes in. So if you've got an overgrowth of, you know, everyone knows about SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. You also get small intestinal fungal overgrowth. When you have that problem because of bacteria or because of antibiotics, overuse of antibiotics or even um, too many uh, PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. But when you have this imbalance, even if you eat a healthy diet, you can have problems. So it's hmm. not as simple as you are what you eat. You are what you eat, but you also are what your gut bacteria are eating. So if you have an overgrowth of these bad yeast or bacteria, sometimes a good diet can still be a problem because so, you've got to get rid of the bad bacteria or the bad yeast before you can actually... Um, solve the problem so yes it's to a certain extent you are what you eat but it's a little bit more complicated because a lot of has to do with the microbiome and the flora in your gut so you realize so, that you just scared the hell out of me because <laughs> i eat so healthy but you're saying side you could have a leaky gut right now well it's, it's important to eat really healthy mm -hmm. but um here's a perfect example if you have an overgrowth of yeast mm -hmm. Um, fermented foods and even some probiotics that you take could be a problem. Hmm. So as a general rule, fermented foods are good for your gut. But if you have an overgrowth of yeast, that could be a problem. That's why, as you know, I've just been doing this for so long. As a clinician, you get weary of people who have generic rules for what's the best diet, What's the best this? Everyone's a little bit different and you really need to adjust things according to one's need. Now, that's the beauty of measuring things. You can sort of, and that's why I'm so intrigued by all these wearables now mm -hmm. because, you know, I have a CGM on at the moment. Certain foods will spike my blood sugar but mm -hmm. won't spike my wife's blood sugar. Yep. Same food. Um, so... 
the beauty of what's happening in medicine today is you can actually measure a lot of these things mm -hmm. and see how you respond to food. And that's why I'm sure you've worn a CGM and yep. you've seen how different people respond to different foods. So I think, um, yes, you are what you eat, but what you eat is not necessarily the right or the same diet's not necessarily right for everyone. So how do I take care of my gut microbiome? My, my gut microbiome, yeah. Like I am very interested now to figure out, am I actually moving the right direction? Am I eating the right things? Well, first you gotta ideally see that you don't have, if you are eating a healthy diet mm -hmm. and you still have bloating and gas, and you're not having a good poop every day, it's a little bit loose or a little bit constipated, um, but your diet is what you deem as healthy, mm -hmm. chances are you've got a gut problem. Okay. So food sensitivities, the question always arises, is it the food or is it the reaction of the food with your microbiome? Mm -hmm. So usually in my practice, that's the first area I'll work on is the microbiome. So often, you know, too often people come in eating, you know, just the nature of them coming to me, their diets are pretty good, but their microbiome is screwed up and you've got to start correcting the microbiome. You either got to give them, you know, I use herbal formulas a lot to, to help balance that. So the first step is using herbal form, formulas to correct the imbalance. Mm -hmm. Then you may want to give probiotics. Only after that. First you do that. Sometimes you need nutrients to help with the leaky gut. Um, sometimes you need digestive aids, whether it's um, bitters to stimulate digestion or enzymes. It all depends. But I usually start with the gut and then move on. Which makes sense because the way you're talking about it, the gut is where inflammation Could, stems from if you have a imbalance. Very often. Talk yes. to me about, I hear people talk, saying that sugar is a the poison. Sugar is the, the devil. devil. <laughs> so sugar, you know, first of all, it leads to or predisposes you or causes even most of the diseases that we fear from heart disease to Alzheimer's, to cancer, to osteoporosis, sugar, it will, will eventually lead to most of those if you're eating too much of it. So for instance, Alzheimer's is sometimes called um, diabetes three. Hmm. So sugar, um, partly because of the hormonal response to sugar, insulin, you know, you, you, you'll become insulin resistant and then diabetic. But also the sugar, what it does in the gut, and you know this connection of what sugar does to the flora, to the bacteria in the gut, how it causes imbalances, how it feeds the bad bacteria. So sugar is a poison on every level. Mm -hmm. Now, I love sugar too. I mean, sugar is I love sugar. Yeah, who, who, who doesn't, doesn't love sugar? So you know, we have got to be realistic. It's not that sugar uh, you. you can't have any sugar, but the less sugar you eat, the better. And certain people are more predisposed to having sugar. You know, I'm, you know, sugars. For for someone like me with my genes, sugar is just bad news. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I still I'll have a croissant with my grandson. I can't not do that. I think the context is always important. But um, you know, the less sugar, refined carbs you can eat, 
And carbs in general, I find, are a problem for a lot of people, for most people, especially as you get older. But sugar and um, the grains even, although some people tolerate grains well, you know, for someone like me and a lot, and, and I, I'm sort of typical of a lot of people, especially as they get older, the sugar and the grains are the first things I get out of people's diets. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean I never have rice, but rice will spike my sugar. Yep. But, um, it doesn't mean I'm not going to have my croissant, but it, it's more of a treat than sort of a regular part of my diet. I mean, the whole idea that you need a starch with your dinner, what is bullshit. Completely bullshit. So I, yeah. um, I have, you know, patients, friends who can eat this crap and they're fine. <laughs> who knows if it'll catch up with them later? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, now we, the beauty of what's happening in medicine now is we can measure so many things. We can actually do, you know, tests to see how much plaque there is in someone's heart. We can, you know, there's this new test we were talking about before this whole body MRI. Yep. There's cancer, there's liquid biopsy, there's cancer screening blood tests. There's so many tests that we can pick up problems before they become problems. So it's exci- exciting times in medicine, and I think the wearables have also sort of <clears throat> upped our game. I-, I think we've entered a new phase of medicine where if you're not seeing a doctor who's actually monitoring or, or doing yep. these things yep. for you, go somewhere else. Because there's so many things we can that the traditional doctors are not doing from advanced lipid panels to various hormone testing to nutrient levels to maybe, you know, doing a clearly test or pre Now, some of it's expensive and it's not essential for everyone, but there's so much testing that can be done. Mm-hmm. And there's so many <clears throat> and um, lifestyle recommendations that should be recommended that can really change people's lives and how well they're going to age it's so i actually think that we're probably five years away from this being all incredibly accessible for people i mean let's be honest i agree doctors and medicine are very slow to change (laughs) um but yeah it's going to happen all these tests at the moment pre is ridiculously expensive in a few years in five years it's going to be much cheaper the same with the clearly test at the moment it's like twelve hundred dollars few years ago so all these tests are going to get cheap i agree with you yeah so tell me talk to me about another thing right everyone uses this catch-all term inflammation if you have inflammation you're going to die sooner if you have inflammation your health span is going to be worse what exactly is inflammation right so it's important to differentiate between acute and chronic inflammation Mm -hmm. acute acute inflammation is when you sprain your ankle or you cut yourself it gets red it gets swollen um, and can get itchy and hot that's acute inflammation which we all sort of know chronic inflammation usually doesn't present so easy so easily clinically and it's a chronic inflammation that is developing in our whether it's in our skin or joints or heart or brain and that's the inflammation that is usually the precursor to almost all the in fact all the diseases of aging um, so in fact there's a term they they now use called inflam aging hmm. sort of the inflammation triggering aging so Tamping down the inflammatory process in the body is probably one of the best things you can do 
to sort of slow down the aging process. Decreasing sugar is probably one of the most important things you can do to to, to, to slow down the inflammation. So you get the external triggers of inflammation, which could be not exercising, eating too much crap, the stress, all of that will lead, you know, those external those triggers will lead to inflammation. But the internal inflammation that I'm obsessed about, and that's the gut. The gut is probably the commonest source or internal source of inflammation. So don't just think about the sugar and the meditation and the exercise, all important. The gut is a really important source of the inflammation. And just understanding that inflammation is often the beginning of these other sort of, we talked about sugar dysregulation, insulin resistance, prediabetes, diabetes. Inflammation is often the beginning of a disease process, whether it's Alzheimer's or heart disease or even cancer. A lot of people believe inflammation is where cancer starts. But, you know, let's just take heart disease. It's not just about cholesterol and apolipoprotein B, which is more important than cholesterol, but it's you, you need that inflammation starting in the vessel wall and then how the, you know, the, the plaque will, will, will attach it. So think of inflammation as that first step in the disease process. The description of how what inflammation does and i think that the way you call it about inflam aging right it's on one hand incredibly uh prolific the way that you describe it on the other hand it actually really tells me that if there's one thing and one thing only that we are really trying to figure out it's how do we stop inflam aging exactly as we're actually so, getting older so when you think of it a lot of these techniques and um, modalities that we're recommending actually decrease inflammation in the body. So um, fasting, mm -hmm. uh, uh, cryotherapy or cold plunging, um, exercise, meditation, sleep, hmm. all of these recommendations or these biohacks tend to decrease inflammation so um, inflammation or inflam aging is that mechanism that most of them actually are helping or, or most of them are working by slowing down or decreasing the inflammation uh, i assume your audience has have heard of the term autophagy of course but another so, explanation from the master autophagy is just your body's own disposal system is uh, the way I think of it. It's the garbage collection and the recycling system all in one. So when your your cells are, you know, have have done what they have to do, or they're breaking down, they something has to sort of you know, it's garbage. Some you know, something has to get rid of them, otherwise they trigger inflammation. So if the garbage if the, the recycling or the garbage collection is not working properly, it's going to, you're going to have more inflammation. And as we get older, we're more prone to inflammation because one of the systems that doesn't work as well is autophagy. Hmm. That's why as you get older, it becomes more important to stimulate this garbage collection because it's not working as well. And that's where the fasting, the sleeping, the meditating, the exercising, all these things, uh, the cold, the extreme temperatures, all these mechanisms that you biohackers have been, you know, 
talking about for so long, a lot of them stimulate this autophagy process, which will then help with decreasing inflammation. Interesting. And so really it's just making sure that the body's garbage disposal mechanism is working at at an optimal pace. Exactly. That's it. You know, the way I always think of these things is there's this upstream and downstream. The upstream mechanism is the autophagy and the inflammation or, or preventing inflammation because then when the river goes down and, and the tributaries come off, there's heart disease, there's Alzheimer's, there's bone problems, there's digestive, there's you know, skin problems, joint problems. But upstream is where you want to really work. That's autophagy, you know, preventing the inflammation, which then will then... Inflammation can be... Some people present with joint pain. Mm -hmm. Some people with inflammation present with skin problems. Hmm. Other people with heart disease. But, you know, in Western medicine, we have the cardiologist, the dermatologist, the neurologist... But ultimately, we want someone treating the problem up here, not just where the problem is presenting, because that is not necessarily too late, but you want to prevent that from happening in the organ system. So the whole way we practice medicine mm -hmm. is screwed up. We should have upstream doctors rather than just downstream doctors. It's good to have downstream doctors, but we need upstream doctors as well. Well, really, the, the charge that you're leading is you're saying, guys, I've been doing this for 42, 43 years, and I'm telling you, this is the way that you solve yeah, pretty, downstream problems. Yeah, it's, a, it's, you know, same as in 1984, I saw the future of medicine combining Western and Eastern medicine, um, and now it's sort of having, now I see the future is actually combining all of the, it's not, it's just about good medicine. It's not about alternative. It's not about biohacking. It's about how do you use the good stuff of Western, you know, some of that testing in Western medicine is fantastic. Interestingly enough, a lot of doctors don't even do it, which is crazy. And it's, these are Western tests. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you need drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, you know, sometimes a low dose statin can be a lifesaver. Metformin, you know, people yep. are using that for anti-aging. So I'm not against drugs, but I'm all for using drugs when a, not as a first line yep. therapy using other, you know, lifestyle changes, supplements, etc. before you get to do it. Sometimes you do it all, all the above. Let me, you said something interesting earlier on, as, and as you grab a glass of water, why is water so important, especially as we get a little bit yeah, older? Yeah, well, I'm a perfect example. As you get older, you're you don't perceive thirst. So I'm a classic example. I, I have to have water next to me, otherwise I won't drink. My mm -hmm. wife gives me a hard time. Um, even my staff, they always put a glass of water in front of me because as you get older, for whatever reason, you're, you, you don't really perceive that you're thirsty. Not that you don't need the water, but your, that perception seems to get lost somewhere in the ether. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we tend to get dehydrated as we get, I mean, that's very common, but it's very common as you get older not to, to realize you. And when I talk a lot, I get, you know, I get a, a dry throat. And that's obviously I haven't, I didn't drink enough water in the office today. Mm -hmm. So that's what's happening. What's, are there any long-term health consequences of not drinking water? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there are. Um, what specifically, I mean, apart from 
you're going to get constipated and if you feel dry and you, you know, I'm so much, I get so tired. When I come home and I'm tired or I'm at home and I'm tired, the first thing my wife will say to me, drink some water. I drink water and I, it's, it's <laughs> incredible. So I have no doubt, I'm not sure of the sort of the medical consequences apart from you get constipated, you feel tired, you get dry, etc. I have no doubt. I'm not sure what they are, but I have no doubt there must be medical consequences. And it's very common. I mean, people get headaches. The first thing I'll tell them, did you drink enough water? Mm -hmm. But for me personally, fatigue or just like, you know, my, my wife says she can see it in my eyes. I have two glasses of water and it's like, Done. it's unbelievable. Done. So, So I'll tell you, I get up in the morning I drink one of these before oh, my feet hit the ground. It is painful, <laughs> right. but I will tell you the days I don't do it, dramatic difference. Yeah, My yeah. brain doesn't move as fast. Yeah. I don't move as fast. So last question, and one of the things that I loved in your book is you talked about community, right? You just talked, we yeah. started this talking about if you are just happy, you yeah. express gratitude, you're gonna live longer if you have purpose. Why is community so important for longevity? Well, first of all, we also started there are how many studies. There are tons of studies on loneliness and how bad that is mm -hmm. for one's health. But, you know, having a community, feeling safe in a place, feeling loved, um, feeling comfortable, being able to say what you think, um, I think is priceless. So um, they're just, you know, apart from it just being common sense, that when you're surrounded by people who, who you feel comfortable with, who think like you, who they don't even have to think like you, but you know, there's tons of studies showing this that people in community generally do better than when they don't have community. And um, I think relationships and being able to um, not hold emotional stuff in is what I see. So, so when I think of community, it's not just having a big family and lots of friends. It's the ability to feel yourself, the ability to say what you think, mm -hmm. the ability not to hold um, anger and repress your feelings. Mm -hmm. So to me, when I'm talking about community, it's all the above. Because when you have a community that you feel safe in, it's easier to forgive, it's easier to be kind, it's easier to have gratitude, it's e easier not to hold this rage in, in oneself. And you know, if you, if you look at society today, you know, the rage that, you know, if you look at all the gun violence, for instance. 1.5 per day. I mean, imagine the rage that these people have. So I think, you know, how you correct that is, is a, a whole nother story. But the ability to be able to feel comfortable and free and and not have this rage is probably the most important thing for health and probably aging in general. You know, it's it's interesting. There are times where I can even think about building my first company. I wasn't in a relationship and it was me just working all the time by myself. And you said something which I couldn't identify with more. For some odd reason, you tend to hold this rage in about things that happen throughout your day and they cause stress and tension in your mind. And the moment that I had it was in a relationship, 
got two dogs. I even moved my mom and my brother close to me. It's almost like they act like a buffer and make me a better person just by being around, which lowers my blood pressure, which makes my thoughts a lot softer. And I know it sounds a little bit woo-woo, but the reality is it has been one of the most important equalizers. And arguably, when I really think about it, it's probably been one of the most important factors of my success. Yeah, I uh, see. I don't think it's woo woo anymore. I think um, I think these intangibles are so important. I mean, the, the story or the image I always have is when Nelson Mandela came out of prison. You know, and I remember taking the day off and watching him come out. He walked out of prison with his then, then wife, Winnie Mandela, and he saw his prison guard at the other side of the fence, and some anger and rage built up inside him and he said to himself he he caught it quickly and he said to himself if he continues being angry with this guy even though he went the sky went through hell if he couldn't let that go he Mm -hmm. would never be free so i think the freedom one gets with community and the ability to say what you think and feel comfortable about it and not hold on to all of the shit that we hold. I mean, we all, it's the human condition. So much. And the ability not, you know, to be able to let that go and to be able to speak to someone. I mean, that's why therapy can be so helpful. But the ability to have a family and a community to share that with, I think is, you know, you ask me what's the one thing, maybe that's probably the one thing. It's funny, people always ask me, they say, if you could only do one thing from all this stuff you do, the weightlifting, the hyperbaric oxygen chamber, the infrared sauna, getting the IVs. Idea. But I always tell people the only one thing I'm taking is meditation and gratitude, frankly, because it makes me so much happier with my life. And yeah. happiness and that, at the end of the day, absolutely, yeah. priceless. Well, Dr. Lippman, I really appreciate you. This has been wonderful. Jimmy, mean, you just have so much wisdom that you've given to the world over the years. Hey guys, thanks for listening into this episode of Hone In. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe. And hey, if you have a minute, drop a comment below with your biggest learning, your insights, your takeaways from this conversation. I would personally love to hear from you. Tune in each week for more answers to questions, solutions to problems, and tangible advice that you can apply to your life to live smarter, stronger, and longer. One more thing before you guys leave. This is important. The Honan Podcast is intended as general information. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and support you as you live a healthier, longer life. The use of information on this podcast is not, and I repeat, not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, medical, or mental health professional, and it should not serve as diagnosis or treatment. If you are suffering from a psychological or a mental health condition, please seek help from a qualified health professional. Thank you so much for listening to us.